And the point of today's message in Paul's letter to Timothy is that we are foot soldiers in the Lord's army. The battle belongs to the Lord, and we are foot soldiers in the Lord's army. I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's on page 932 in your pew Bible. And here, Paul reminds Timothy that he too is a soldier in the Lord's army. Every now and then, even here on a Sunday morning, sometimes during the True Tracks hour or at other times, I'll hear the children singing upstairs, and now and then I'll hear them singing a chorus that I sang when I was a little boy at church. Some of you know this song. I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I may never fly or zoom or the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. And Paul is reminding Timothy that, Timothy, you too are in the Lord's army. He writes in 1 Timothy 1, verses 18 to 20, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting these, some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Holy Spirit of God, we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might behold wonderful things, powerful things from your word today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you've been with us in our study of 1 Timothy these first few weeks, you know that smack in the middle of the letter, Paul Uh, states his purpose in writing Timothy. He writes in order that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, Paul says, the pillar and buttress of the truth, the truth of scripture, the truth of the gospel. Near the beginning of the letter, Paul tells Timothy right after the greeting, Timothy, guard the gospel. And why is Timothy told to guard the gospel? Paul tells us, because certain persons have crept into the church and, uh, and these people have drawn people away from the gospel into meaningless discussions that have produced controversy instead of producing what the gospel is always designed to produce, and that is genuine love. Paul talks about that in verse 5. He talks about love that flows from a pure heart in a good conscience, in a sincere or unhypocritical faith. These are the inner qualities that only the Holy Spirit can produce. And the Holy Spirit produces those internal qualities that that issue forth love by the power of the gospel. And that gospel had changed Paul's life. So after telling Timothy to guard the gospel in the opening paragraph, Paul then celebrates the gospel in verses 12 to 17. Paul celebrates the gospel by recounting his own testimony. Paul thanks God for giving him the strength to serve him because in Paul's pre-conversion state, he was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor of God's people. He was a violent aggressor against the church. But Paul received mercy from God. God's grace toward Paul overflowed. Why would God show mercy and grace to a sinner as wicked as Paul? Paul tells us smack in the middle of his testimony. Verse 15, because Jesus Christ came into this world 
to save sinners. That was the whole purpose that Jesus came in. And Paul, who considered himself the very worst of sinners, said that God, in a sense, has sent me as a trophy of his grace. The point being that if God saved me, he'll save anybody. If God saves the very worst of sinners, then he will save any sinner. And Paul wants to drive that message home, that nobody is beyond the need of God's grace, for we all have sinned, and yet no sinner is beyond the reach of God's grace. And that's why Paul ends his testimony with praise. My guess is if Paul was singing the song we just sang, a power and strength to the Lord, we sing glory and power and strength to the Lord, Paul would be the loudest singer in the church. He would be celebrating God with all of his heart. And that's how he ends his testimony. He says, verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. But now Paul ends the chapter in the last few verses with a solemn charge to Timothy. He's getting back to what he said at first. Guard the gospel. Defend the gospel. Fight for the gospel. Because this is the only message by which sinners are saved. And therefore, the enemy will do everything he can to undermine that message, pervert that message, distort that message, to draw people away from the Savior. This is Paul's emphasis at the end of 1 Timothy 1. The truth of the gospel is worth fighting for. The truth of the gospel is worth fighting for. Now, there are a lot of things in church that are not worth fighting over. Not worth fighting for. But one thing that is worth fighting for is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul shows the strength of his conviction regarding this principle by his exhortation to Timothy in verses 18 and 19, and then in his excommunication of false teachers in verses 19 and 20. Consider first his exhortation to Timothy. He begins verse 18 by saying, This charge I entrust to you. Now, we've seen that word charge before, haven't we? Uh, we've seen it back in verse 3. We've seen it back in verse 5. And it's the same Greek term that is used here. It's the Greek term parangelo. It's a military term that literally means to pass on a command from one to another. Uh, so the idea is this. Timothy is the foot soldier who is being given his marching orders by the field general, the Apostle Paul, who is receiving his commands from the commander-in-chief, who is Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus has committed to Paul, has entrusted to Paul the good news of the gospel. Paul has been faithfully proclaiming that. That's the gospel by which Paul was saved, by which Timothy was saved. And now as his pastoral representative in Ephesus, Paul is charging Timothy to fight for the truth of the gospel there. Timothy's the foot soldier receiving his command from the field general who receives his command from the commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus Christ. Both of these men, Paul and Timothy, like all believers, and especially ministers of the gospel, are to guard the gospel, fight for the gospel, defend the gospel. And doing so is not easy. It's a fight. And that's why Paul tells Timothy in this passage to wage the good warfare. And because it is warfare, Paul encourages Timothy. He, he fortifies his faith with two resources in these verses. The first one is Paul's own support for Timothy. 
He says in verse 18, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. Timothy, my child. Back in verse 2, you might recall, Paul referred to Timothy as my true child in the faith. Now, I'm not going to revisit all the backdrop to that verse that we looked at a few weeks ago, but we know that Paul had visited uh, Timothy's hometown of Lystra on Paul's first missionary journey. And it's possible that during that first missionary journey, when Paul preached the gospel, that Timothy was saved at that point. He had trusted Christ as a Savior. We don't know that, but that could have been the case. We do know that when Paul revisited that city during his second missionary journey, that Timothy was given a good report by all the brothers and sisters there. He was known as one who had matured in his faith, that he was a man of character, and in one sense, he was the talk of the town, at least among the Christian community. And so Paul made Timothy his companion, his, his co-worker, uh, his protege, and, and Timothy traveled with Paul on his other journeys. And over the years, Timothy became like a son to Paul. But Timothy was also a soldier of Christ. So here Paul reminds Timothy, you're my son in the faith, but you're also a soldier of Jesus Christ. And, and he knows that Timothy is in a real battle in Ephesus for doctrinal truth because false teachers have been drawing people away from the gospel. So Paul is fortifying Timothy's faith by saying, Timothy, you have my support, not only as a father in the faith who loves you, but as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He also gives Timothy a second resource for fortifying his faith. Not only Paul's personal support for Timothy as an apostle, but secondly, prophecies that were previously made about Timothy. Did you see that in verse 18? This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. We don't know exactly what those prophecies were, but as we continue to read through this letter of Paul to Timothy and his second letter to Timothy, the exhortations and uh, talking about Timothy's past and things like that, we have a pretty good idea of what was said, most likely at his ordination. Later on in the same letter in chapter 4, verse 14, Paul says to Timothy, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands upon you. As one who was ordained to the ministry of the gospel back in 1992, um, something that I recall with great joy as the elders laid their hands on me and prayed over me. I could only imagine what it was like as the elders uh, put their hands on Timothy and prayed over him. There were certain prophecies, uh, we might call it predictive praying, that was made about Timothy. I can only imagine that they said something like this. I actually wrote this down. Perhaps they said something along these lines. Lord, we thank you for saving Timothy and calling him to serve you. We know that you are going to use Timothy in mighty ways as a teacher and preacher of your word. This man of God is, by your grace, going to be a faithful shepherd who will love your flock and will lead them in the ways of God according to your truth. Oh, fill him with your spirit, O oh God. Empower Timothy for this great work that you have called him to do. That kind of prayer, I would imagine, would have fired up a young man who was going into the ministry, and it would sustain him during the dark days. Moments ago, 
Bill refer Bill Smith, our missionary to Papua New Guinea, referred to the time that he was on this very platform, um, getting married, and then later he and Lori were commissioned for the work that God called them to do. One of the things I recall is the commissioning of my cousin John, who also served as a missionary to Papua New Guinea. He went out just a few years between uh, before Bill and Lori did uh, in a different area of Papua New Guinea. And that he was commissioned in 1980. And there's not a lot of commissioning services I remember or the uh, scriptural text of those commissioning services. But at that time, my uncle Harry preached his commissioning service and his text was John 1.6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now we know that in, in the context of that, that that's talking about John the Baptist who prepared the way for Christ. But by way of application... My Uncle Harry preached that message for his nephew, my cousin John, as he was going to the field that he, like John the Baptist, was not the light, but he was sent to bear witness for that light, to be a light for Christ in the dark jungles of Papua New Guinea. Like John the Baptist, John came as a witness to bear witness for the light, the light of Jesus Christ. I think we have a picture there, don't we? that we can throw up there. Here he was, just a young guy in his early 20s, a single guy that went to the Kubo people of 700 in Papua New Guinea. And I often wondered what it was like. I would talk to John, what it was like to live in a grass hut. There were definitely days I'm sure he felt alone, discouraged, weak. And I've got to believe there were times that he thought, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Maybe there were times in your life where somebody prayed over you. I think of how important it is to encourage specifically children and young people. I remember when I was uh, just a little boy as young as five or six years old. I, I had a hunger for God's word and, and uh, enjoyed being at church. And there were men and women, my Sunday school teacher, I think of Mrs. Romans when I was... Uh, Good, nice name after a book of the Bible. But her name was Mrs. Romans, and she was like my kindergarten, my first grade teacher. And uh, they would encourage me, say, Matthew, God has his hand on you in a special way. The Lord's gone and used you in great ways. Now, they're not prophets like the prophets of Scripture were. For all she knows, I, I could have gotten sick and died at an early age, right? But the point is, they believe in a God who raises up boys and girls and men and women to be his light in this world. And life is hard, but God's word gives us hope. And if there's one thing our children and our teens need today, it's a word of hope. And God has given us his word of hope. He's given us word of grace that we're to pour into one another's lives. In the same way, Paul reminds Timothy of the, the prophecies that were previously made about him. That by them, Paul says, those prophecies, you may wage the good warfare. Don't forget your calling, Timothy. Keep on waging the good warfare. Fight the good fight. Surely recording these prophecies, this predictive praying, as it were, would encourage Timothy in the battle he was now facing, that there had been a church behind him that would send him, and those leaders had prayed over him and believed in the mission to which God had called him. And boy, do God's people need this encouragement today. The most critical battle believers will ever face, and we face a lot of battles in life, relational battles, uh, perhaps health issues, 
But the most critical battle believers will ever face is the battle for gospel truth. How do I know that this is the most important battle we ever face? Because the gospel is the most important message there is. There is nothing more important in life, including your health, my health, than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says to the church at Corinth, I delivered to you that which I also received, a message of first importance. Now, everything in God's word is important, but there's something that's of first importance. And Paul, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, identifies that thing of first importance is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, just as the scripture said that he would. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, this is the gospel by which you are saved. This is the gospel in which you stand. If you hold fast to the faith, that message that was first delivered to you. So after Paul gives Timothy these two resources to fortify his faith, those resources being Paul's own personal support for Timothy, as well as the prophecies that were previously made about Timothy, Paul then gives him two requisites for fighting the good fight of faith. Two necessary qualities if Timothy is going to be a faithful soldier of Jesus Christ. And he gives it to us in verse 19. Holding faith and a good conscience. Holding faith and a good conscience. These two qualities are joined together three times in this letter. In verse 5, we've already looked at a couple of weeks ago, where Paul talks about how the gospel produces in us a pure heart and a a good conscience and a sincere faith. Then it's mentioned again, they're joined here again, uh, holding faith and a good conscience here in verse 19. And then in chapter 3, verse 9, where Paul refers to it as the faith. The faith. So yes, it's something we believe in, we're exercising faith, but the emphasis isn't so much on our faith, it's the object of, of what we are putting our faith in, the Word of God, the God of the Word. Jude, in his letter, wrote to believers, I was very eager to write to you about the salvation that we all share, but I found it necessary to urge you to defend the faith, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Which means that it's not to be added to, it's not to be taken from, it's not to be revised, amended, or changed in any way. It has been once for all delivered to the saints. But Jude says, some False teachers have crept into the church, just like they did in Ephesus. And they were drawing people away from the truth of the gospel. And so Jude says, you know, I just wanted to enjoy a nice letter about our common salvation, but I found it urgent that I tell you to defend the faith. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith is the Christian faith. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything that pertains to our common salvation. If you were to take a survey of church history over the last 2,000 years, you would see that there has never been a time when God's truth was not under attack. There's never been a time when God's truth has not been under attack, and there's never been a time when God's people were not susceptible of falling into error. 
To fight the good fight, we must embrace God's truth. That's the first phrase in our vision statement. Embrace God's truth and joy as people extend God's glory. And that phrase comes first because we cannot extend God's glory. We cannot enjoy God's people truly unless we first embrace God's truth. And we're to do that with a good conscience. A good conscience comes from a good life. From a person who practices what they preach. In verse 5, Paul talks about a good conscience and a sincere faith. That literally means unhypocritical faith. George Knight writes in his commentary... A good conscience is a state in which one's moral self-evaluation accurately registers that one has been obedient to God. That's good. Holding faith and a good conscience are both necessary for fighting the good fight because they go hand in hand. John Calvin wrote, A bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. I want you to ponder that for just a moment. A bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. If you think about that, it makes sense, doesn't it? Because if someone professes to be a Christian, but their life is not aligned with the Word of God, something's got to change. Either their life has to change or God's Word has to change. Unless they just reject it altogether and say that they're not a Christian. But if they're a professing Christian who refuses to repent, what happens is, what the tendency is, they calibrate God's word according to their conscience instead of calibrating their conscience according to God's word. Something's got to change, but because they refuse to change, but they want to still profess Christ, they will change God's word rather than change their ways. And we see this happening all the time. People that were thoroughly committed to scripture all of a sudden find a reason for the divorce that the Bible does not give. Those that want to participate in same-sex relationships or any sexual relationship outside of marriage. The whole gender issue, right? These are just a few of the things, but these are kind of at the forefront of the battles we're facing today. Like I said, there has never been a time in church history where God's truth was not under attack. There was never a time in church history where God's people were not susceptible to compromise. And we see that in our day. The package may change now and then, but the core problem is still the same. Will we calibrate our lives to the Word of God or will we change God's Word to try to suit the way we want to live? Well, that was the case with two men whom Paul mentions at the end of the chapter as he moves from his exhortation to Timothy to his excommunication of false teachers. Verses 19 and 20, he talks about Timothy holding faith in a good conscience. Then he says, By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. One commentator writes that these men, having rejected their faith, having rejected the faith, their testimony turned into the Titanic. Their ship was sunk. The problem is that they were also taking others down with them. And Paul mentions them by name. The first heretic Paul calls out by name is Hymenaeus, 
whom Paul also mentions in his second letter to Timothy, where he says that Hymenaeus has swerved from the truth and has overturned or has ruined the faith of some. The other heretic Paul mentions here is Alexander. This too is probably the same Alexander that Paul mentions in his second letter to Timothy chapter 4 where he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself because he strongly opposed our message. Because these men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, rejected the faith, Paul ejected them from the church. They were most likely elders in the church. This, this fits was Paul's prediction to the Ephesian elders back in Acts 20. Remember what he said? He said, from your own group, men will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following for themselves. This is a sobering reminder for pastors and elders that no one is immune to the temptation of twisting God's word to gain a following for yourself. That's a warning to me. It's a warning to my fellow elders that we would use God's word to get people to follow us instead of following Jesus. But all of us are susceptible to that. Pastors, elders, deacons, youth leaders, other ministry leaders. We must guard against that. It's easy, if we're not careful, to use our influence to actually seduce people, to manipulate people into following us instead of following the Lord. And doing such a thing is so wicked that we would distort God's word to get a following for ourselves that Paul turns these men over to Satan. He turns them over to Satan. The details are not given, but we can deduce from other scriptures that this measure would have involved removing them officially from the membership of the church, denying them Christian fellowship, including their participation in the Lord's Supper, which is an ordinance for believers. John Stott rightly stated, since the church is the dwelling place of God, it follows that to be ejected from it is to be sent back into the world, the habitat of Satan. Another wrote, some must be cast into the sea for them to realize the benefits of being on board the ship. Church discipline is a drastic measure. We've been through it a few times ourselves here at Webster Bible Church. But here we see that this drastic measure is not intended to be punitive, but restorative. Notice Paul says he turned them over to Satan. Why? That they may learn not to blaspheme. The Greek word for learn there is paiduo, and, and it actually conveys a, a positive sense of training and instruction. That is to say that this discipline, though painful, was not designed to be ultimately harmful, but helpful in the lives of these men who had wandered from the truth. Its intended purpose was to get these men who had wandered from the truth to get back on the right path and in the meantime preserve the purity of the church doctrinally and uh, practically for the glory of God. These men had to learn not to blaspheme. 
Because that's what non-Christians do. Do you remember what Paul shared in his testimony? He said, formerly, that is in his pre-conversion state, he says, I was a what? Blasphemer. It's the first thing he mentions. Before coming to Christ, I was a blasphemer. What is a blasphemer? A blasphemer is someone who behaves in such a way so as to dishonor God by distorting his word either by what he says or by how he lives. And let's face it, blasphemy usually involves both. It involves doctrinal heresy and moral heresy as we distort the word of God to suit our own lifestyle. And that's why blasphemers must be expelled from the church. They need to see that when they do that, they are not uh, on good terms with God. They are separated from Christ. They have been cut off from Christ. They have uh, cut themselves off from Christ. And the idea is that when we show them that by tossing them into the sea, so to speak, into Satan's habitat, they will come to their senses, return to Christ, and be reconciled to the people of God and participate in Christian fellowship once again. But confronting people is hard. Confronting people is hard. Removing them from the church, going through that painful process is even harder. Especially when they've been part of your fellowship for a long time. Philip Ryken reminds us, quote, Ministry is not easy, but then again, warfare never is. Christians must never forget that they are soldiers. End quote. As Sister Carrie mentioned early in our service, our teens and youth leaders participated in Word of Life's overnight reverb event this weekend. We praise God for the nearly 2,000 teens who went for the 70-plus professions of faith in Christ after the gospel was preached. And I always find joy. I actually sent Rod Whitney a little email today just thanking him for his ministry and praying he gets rested up after that weekend. There's a sense in which I feel ultimately indebted to the Lord, but I always have a special place in my heart for Word of Life Ministries because the Lord used that ministry in my life when I was 12 years old, not only to grow me in my walk with Christ, but it was through preaching my first sermon through a Word of Life program uh, that I sensed subjectively the Lord's call to preach His Word for the rest of my life. And I would go to those events. Reverb used to be called Super Bowl back in the day, but then because of copyright issues and all that, they had to change the name of it. It was called the Super Bowl. And uh, all we did was bowl. That was like the big activity all night. Um, Now it's kind of expanded beyond that. But those were great days. But what I found most helpful in my spiritual formation during my early teens, later on in my teens, and specifically through the Word of Life program, were the daily quiet times. And we carried around the the Scripture memory pack. I don't know if they still have those. Maybe they're digital now or whatever. But there was a Scripture memory verse pack that you'd... And they were little like business-sized cards, and you would just memorize these Scripture verses related to different topics. And I remember when I was 12 years old, 7th grade, going through my scripture, uh, my scripture memory packet with Word of Life that was all in the King James Version back then. And um, I came across one passage that so impacted me as a 12-year-old kid that at that time I made it my life verse. And like I said, I memorized it in the King James. And it's 2 Timothy chapter 2, 
verses 3 and 4, where Paul says to Timothy, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And the Lord impressed on me even at 12 years old that I'm called to be a soldier of Jesus Christ. Even at the age of 12, I knew that the truth of the gospel is worth fighting for. Well, by the grace of God, Paul remained in the Lord's army until the end of his life. By then, he had become a military veteran, as it were, who had fought and led many campaigns. And at the end of his second letter to Timothy, which is the last canonical letter Paul ever wrote, he writes the dying words of a field general to his second-in-command. And Paul says, The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We serve a risen Savior. We are soldiers in Christ's army. The question is, will we finish the race before us? Will we fight the good fight? Will we keep the faith? The other day I told my wife, Ruthie, a lot of times as a young man you have certain aspirations for what your life will be. But I told Ruthie, I said, you know, the older I get, the more I pray that the Lord would simply help me to finish well. Just to be faithful. Because in the end, that's what matters. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this word we have just considered is your word of grace to us. It's a strong word, but it's a sweet word. Help us to take it to heart and live accordingly in the power of your Holy Spirit. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus, our commander-in-chief. Amen.